Hello and welcome to the Walk Around Podcast powered by JMA Group. If you are in the automotive business, you have found the right place. I am one of your hosts, Mark Spoto, joined always by Elliot Shore. Hello, hello. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming Joel Bassam to the podcast. He is the president of Eastern's Automotive Group, and they are based in Virginia, but they have eight retail locations throughout DC, Maryland, and Virginia, and they are an independent used car dealership. Joel has been the president there for almost two years, and before that, he has held basically every area of a dealership's operations uh, in his experience. Now, Elliot, this was such a unique conversation because for one, and we talked to, we mentioned this to Joel, we were, we're so grateful that he reached out to us to be on the podcast, one of yes. our first guests who have done that. And he shared incredible insight about the business. Yeah, it was great to get an independent used car dealer on um, to share, you know, kind of some grievances with the industry and but really some better insights on um, how a dealer that is bound by nothing goes to market. Right. It's a whole new perspective. So let's take a walk around with Joel Bassam. Well, Joel, welcome so much to the Walk Around Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you join us. And Elliot, I think this may be a first yeah. where a Walk Around listener yes. reached out to us to be on the podcast. Yes. So we are thrilled to make that happen, Joel. Welcome. Yeah. I'm honored to be the first and I'm a fan of the podcast and just thought I could offer an independent perspective um, in more ways than one. Yeah, and that was the funny part. And for all you out there who don't believe in the power of LinkedIn, well, believe, <laughs> because um, we wouldn't be talking here with Joel if it wasn't for LinkedIn and the power of LinkedIn. But um, but what was funny to me, and well, let's go just go right there. Sure. Um, you know, what was funny was that Joel reached out and, and was very complimentary of the podcast. Which we love. Which we love. Thank, Thank you, Joel. And, uh, but you did have a butt in there, right? Yeah, there true. was a, well, you know, you guys really focus on the franchise car dealer. I think there's a perspective of the independent used car dealer that needs to be heard. hundred percent. And, and, you know, we, um, We're I like, saw it and I'm like, he's right. He's absolutely right. <laughs> he's absolutely right. So I guess, Joe, what caught your ear or what? You know, right off the bat, you know, as an independent, as a me, as a serious regional independent used car dealer, right? We're not talking about mom and pop buy here, pay here's, right? We're talking about uh, fully staffed yeah, facilities, eight retail locations, eight retail locations um, that, and, and, you know, that look like franchise dealerships. Sure. Um, there's a, there's a, a significant brand, you know, that, oh, yeah, has absolutely. Developed, so, yeah, official partner of the commanders. That's but, right. Um, but but the uh, but tell us, Joel. You know what what were you you know what caught your eye about the podcast, and what were yeah. you really alluding to? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's uh, kind of, uh, in my opinion, an unfortunate theme of the overall kind of automotive um, marketing space and internal communication, where there really is almost exclusively a focus on the new side and changes and evolutions on that side, um, and that's incredibly important. And there's no doubt that that's where a majority of the investments and changes happen in our industry. Um, but, you know, as anyone who sees those numbers, we, we talk about SAR this and SAR that, and it's pacing what this year, and it's, it's going to change and it's been manipulated. But that used car number has always been kind of steadily double, if not a little bit more um, in that number. And of that, you know, generally 25% of that, you know, I think this year it's about 44 million is what they're pacing it out to be. Right. Um, there's about 25% of that will happen on the private market. So even if you take that out of it, it's right. still double SAR. Um, and, you know, as much as I like to say, there's kind of three buckets of dealerships, um, you know, I, the, the big independent player doesn't get talked about a lot because rightly so, there are a lot of us. Um, and a majority of our market is that kind of mom and pop dealership. That being said, those collections of mom and pop dealerships make up for, you know, 20 million transactions annually. So it's nothing to kind of be stopped, like stepped over and not talked about. Um, and the reason really what what really drew me to reaching out because I've been listening to you guys for a while was you guys were um, a few episodes ago and based on where this comes out, it might be a few more episodes ago when you guys were talking to your transportation partner, which was a great podcast, reach out to him on LinkedIn afterwards and see nice. stuff together um, was you guys were talking about the number of dealerships and whether he had groups in the in his space. And I think the number that he was quoted is you guys said there were 16,000 dealers 
or so in the country. And I'm like, well, actually, there's, you know, almost 40,000 dealerships and most of them are independent. <laughs> so um, right. Those oh, are really, those are the ones. <laughs> How insulting can we be? <laughs> and the funny thing is we're insulting the biggest part of the market. Absolutely. It, exactly. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's just a different, it's a different mindset. So the, you know, most of the independent dealerships I kind of lovingly say are like, you know, a good regional like um, restaurant or like a dentistry office, like solid does well, supports the community, does, you know, has a good family business, has probably eight, nine employees, you know, retails maybe 20 cars a month. Um, and I, I, I've seen this firsthand by going to NIADAs. And if you've never attended one of those, I'd, I'd recommend it as at least an experience to understand the true difference oh. in scale between a regular independent and a standard or even one point franchise dealership. But I don't uh, even, I didn't even know there was an NIDA. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great advocacy group for, for the groups overall. Um, wow. but the conferences, the scale of the conference is slightly, it's, it's, <laughs> Not quite an ADA. it's unbelievable how much smaller it is, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's still phenomenal. I, I, NADA is still generally where we go, but we're a little different. So what you guys alluded to, you know, if a regular dealership does that, we, we, you know, with eight retail locations, we'll retail about 10 to 12,000 used cars a year. Um, that that total revenue will be anywhere from 200 to 250 million. So it's it's a decent it's a decent amount of metal we're moving. So Joel, let, let's get into it. You know, let's let's start sharing that perspective from the independents, sure. especially over the last couple of years and how the retail environment has been impacted going back to COVID and now with inventory constraints and demand. What what's been your What's been your side of the industry when sure. it comes to just the retail atmosphere right now? Yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest thing right off the bat is there's a general trend of dealerships have been doing great over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, maybe now it's time to give it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, in the independent space, which, again, you know, I'll, I'll say this one more time, is most of the market right. uh, is has, has not been doing as well. Just, you know, our transaction costs have gone up or cars have become less affordable um, we naturally skew more subprime, but because of the, the collateral that we carry, um, and you know our our general, I don't want to say our, I mean independence. Generally, we we cater towards um, you know an average consumer. We always like to say we sell cars to the hardworking men and women of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, uh, which you can't tell I'm a marketing guy, right? So <laughs> those that average consumer is the one who's really been left behind um, throughout this kind of inflationary period in the in the used and new space, um, and you know even though new side is starting to see some positive growth trends. It's still the average cost of those cars being, you know, tapping 50 grand means that, you know, the teacher still isn't buying a car anytime soon. Right. Um, your, your, your nurse, your bus driver, your regular people are still really struggling to find the right vehicle for them. Um, and that's been our struggle. Um, we, we felt it too. So we've seen, even though our gross profit per unit has been steady throughout the last few years, our volume has dropped and that's kind of been the shared use case across the independent space that we've, we've seen. Hmm. Uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, um, especially with the retraction of some banks. And one of the things that affects independence a little bit differently than a regular franchise dealership is um, because of our position in the market, we tend to be the first to get excluded um, from any changes to lending programs. So if right. you have, you know, a bank that has exceptions for independence, those exceptions get revoked and, uh, if you have, you know, you're the only one, for instance, like we were, we were actually supposed to be the only independent on a cap one floor plan. Um, you know, and I, I'm kind of worked out that we ended up not being the first because of the recent uh, announcement they've made, but that that's always the case. Um, and, and there's some, you know, valid reasons behind that, that thought um, because of our access to collateral, meaning the vehicle itself is, is worth less um, when we're selling it initially. Um, but mm-hmm. That's that's been the biggest trend of this year. It's it's hard it, and it stinks because I, I want to sell more cars to more people, not just because I want to make more money, but because I generally feel like we serve a really important purpose in the market that's not met by new car franchises. Um, and we're unable to do that because of the market conditions. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's a fascinating perspective to hear that. Have Have you guys been been reaching further into the higher mileage, older game yeah. in order to just really you know satisfy the teachers out the you know the the college students out there, the people that need reliable transportation? How have you been addressing that? I, that exactly what you said. I mean, we used this, we call them guardrails that we would keep up with our buying. You know, yeah. 2018, our average car was two two years old and had 35,000 uh, miles on it. That number has almost doubled on both of those facts. And our average transaction price has increased. 
Wow. You know, and that's and that's not, you know, something that anyone who looks at macroeconomic data in in our industry would be shocked by, but it doesn't change the fact that consumers paying more for war, for less basically. Um, yeah. because that's what it's currently worth. And while, you know, short term we're making that retail sale and we have a gross profit per unit, long term for that consumer, you know, when they're trading out of that and they have that trade in event in two or three years, uh, assuming that like like we do and a lot of other people do that depreciation will start to creep back into the market in the latter half of this year, um, they're going to be in a very difficult position carrying a, probably a ton of negative equity. Um, right. It's going to create its own kind of sub, uh, let's say, struggle that uh, every franchise will have to deal with that. And that'll be across the entire spectrum of new and used. Yeah, the, you know, it's a real problem. I'll, I actually have an example. My um, uh, family member of mine uh, just over the weekend here um, uh, totaled the car, um, all good, safe and sound. But uh, it was actually just a bumper issue, but total, the vehicle is totaled. Uh, he got $15,000 from the insurance company. And he's asking me, what can I get for $15,000? Not I, much. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. And I was... So I haven't looked at that price point, you know, in a while. I just and I was looking on Auto Trader, right, or a couple of the websites that aggregate right used vehicles. There was literally nothing reasonably reliable to get. Um, yeah, you're you're spot on. That that segment of the market doesn't exist. There's there's no other there's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to wrap. Well, I talk around it. Um, that was our meat and, you know, kind of our meat and potatoes side of the business and sure. it turned the fastest. We made the least amount of money, but there was always volume there. They, those cars just don't exist in the marketplace um, whatsoever. So we've, we always said we like to find cars in the teens and that the, our wholesale department, now they would say those are 20 teens. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that car, you're talking about two, three-year-old Nissan Versus, for instance, that's always the example that we use because um, right. that's been a very successful car for us. Those cars are, you know, two, three-year-old cars that are bringing at or more than MSRP. Um, because another part of the story um, that doesn't get told on the new side um, is, and, and actually one of the things that we talked about when we were preparing for this was, you know, the car dealership guy and that, that Twitter account. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he just tweeted out something recently, which was the uh, percentage of new vehicles sold that were under twenty-five thousand dollars dropped from 24 percent in 2018 to four percent in 2013 um and that doesn't shock me at all uh, wow. when i've talked and spoken to other partners that i've worked with they expect new car prices to continue to increase into the future um which means that those entry-level models at the new side are going to continue to not exist and when they don't exist at that they don't become right. used cars and so the whole ecosystem flow of that um, it's not going to get solved anytime soon. Um, it's like you introduce a new predator to, you know, a coral reef, and now we're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, vintages of 21, 22, and even the the kind of laggard effects that we saw in a little bit of this year, uh, fleet leases not getting served, and uh, manufacturers continuing to almost exclusively produce even high trim levels on entry-level cars. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to mean that those used cars, those affordable used cars, don't exist to become used cars. Right. Um, so it's it's not going to change. Joel, are you here to say and make an announcement yeah. that, that you it, are uh, that car dealership guy? No, gosh, I wish. I have a feeling you are that car dealership guy on Twitter. No? No, I think I think I have a good idea who who it is. But no, it, you know, it's, it's a great follow for anyone. And I think I think uh, that person, I'm assuming it's a guy, but, you know, it doesn't not necessarily the case. Um, I think they do a great job of kind of explaining things to a non-automotive uh, specific. I think that's why it's been such a successful account is you don't have to be a dealer or even in the dealership space to kind of understand the the points of it. But it's a great account. Um, and yeah. honestly, we, one of the things that we didn't talk about is a big reason that I want to talk about it is I, I think I, I'll, if you want to make a statement, you want me to make my sure thing. I think independent dealerships are are better operators than new car franchises on the whole because mm. we have to be. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. We don't have any inherent uh, blue sky value. Right. Our, our only value is to be profitable um, to the dealer principle, as opposed to any sort of egg building towards any exit event. Interesting. So that's a, uh, that's a great point. And let's, I think, double yeah, click on let's that. Talk more. Yeah. Not that. Now that we've established you're not sure. the car dealership guy. <laughs> I've got, I've got, my, Hager, I've got still, my Hager board right here, I'm ready still. to go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Joel, you, to the reality of what you're saying, you know, and we've talked previously, but you actually were a franchise new vehicle dealer, correct? And you've gotten out of that game because correct. of this exact fact that you're talking about. Yeah, just like CarMax. 
not that you know we did it first but you know whatever so we had so let me let me quantify this a little bit um, yeah. so i said initially that the one of the uh biggest things with independence in the current economic climate is that they're going to be the first ones to kind of get removed or cut off from certain access hmm. um and so you you kind of scale that back a little bit that also means that there are doors that aren't open to us um as independent franchises so um, and there's some valid reasons and maybe some non-valid reasons for that existing. We'll, we'll push those aside. Um, the reality is there are entire franchises, our entire lending establishments that say we don't work with independents. Just period in a story. It's a policy that they have written. And so some some independent groups and independent groups that I, I know very intimately and know well will actually begrudgingly buy a new franchise in order to gain access to those things and access yeah. Lending partners, it could be floor plan relationships, it could be product sales, like you guys. I mean, it it doesn't. There, there are entire segments of the markets that just say that we don't work with those. So finding a truly scaled independent—that's another reason why they're so far and few between. Is because generally speaking, even if you start in the independent space, you bring on a new franchise to open doors hmm. that then sets you off to the races. And there's a lot of successful partners that have or successful players in that space that really are used car operators, but have new car franchises in order to kind of check that box on the form more or less in order to gain access to that next level of growth. Um, so you'll see that a lot of times, I bet you can anecdotally think of anyone in the region and maybe some listeners can think of it where you, there might be a, you know, a couple store used and then all of a sudden they buy like a Mitsubishi franchise or You're right. you know, kind of one of the, you know, I don't mean this in a negative way, let's say lower tier franchises. And you're like, Oh, that's strange. And then, you know, that then catapults them to the next level. Right. Um, and so, you take the uh, the next layer of that back is, you know, the reason that those things scale and, and the large groups like Lithium stuff have these, you know, blockbuster acquisitions is in that market space. There are set multiples based on the franchise. There's established blue sky transactional costs when you're buying into an existing franchise point, whether it's an open point or, or one that you're acquiring. Um, and there's good reason for that. You get market exclusivity, right? You're gaining something in return for that, let's say, burnt cash. Um, and then it's your job to then be reliable and your EBITDA, which would grow that cost um, based on you being a good or bad or average dealer. You know, that matters, too, but it matters less. I right. right. There, you right. still have this blank check that's almost guaranteed. Even if you run the thing on the ground, haven't made a dollar in 10 years. If you, that's, if you had a Toyota franchise and you have literally made no money for 10 years, still worth 20 million bucks. You know, that's just right. what it's worth. Right. Um, and if you're an independent dealership and the same thing happens, you're worth nothing. Right. You own the land, it's worth nothing because, and this is a, and I wasn't saying, I wouldn't say it's an argument, but this was the conversation I had with Alan Haig. I'm lucky enough to have dinner with him last NADA um, with a couple other players. And it sounds like I'm name dropping, but it was me, Dale Pollock, and Alan Haig. Great little dinner um, and a couple, another, a couple of the great dealers. Um, and that was the conversation. He said, you know, he looked me dead in the face and said, you know, in independence, Blue Sky is the dealer principle. And so if I'm if there's an acquisition event and they're gone, there is no blue sky because there's no right. value. Because the oh. only the only value we have is the operation, and the operation is generally the principal. Which forces your operation to be that much sharper than right. than the next guy. So tell me, you know, how are you taking advantage of of that? You know, yeah. what are things that you guys try and do, maybe from a customer experience perspective, or things that you try and do to differentiate? from those franchise dealers because you can and they can't. Yeah. I, I, well, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I, the beauty of it, I can try everything and I have no pressure or requirements or change. You know, the, the flip side of the coin is there's no co-op money, mm -hmm. uh, but I will take the freedom over that any, any day of the week. And I, it's when I talk to other, um, generally the people I speak with in the market because of our scale are our new car franchise. And they say, well, we can't do that because of this. And right. that's a really common thing to hear. It's like, well, we don't even have, we can't, I can't even really look into that or try that because of this. And um, that means that we can, everything for us changes. Like we can change the way that we pay our, our staff. We can change the modeling around our reconditioning. We can change the, the way that we acquire vehicles. Um, if one bank isn't working, we can just move on. Um, and that freedom is really what we, what we have gained through that. And so there's lots of things that we do different. Um, a, a couple of kind of key examples yeah. of our operational efficiency that we've built because of that freedom is, um, you know, we are a full hub and spoke model. So huh. um, our, I'm currently in our Sterling corporate headquarters, which is a part of our hub. Uh, altogether, it's about 20 acres or 160,000 square feet of warehouse space. 
Um, and it's really just a, our, our brain and car factory for our operations. So um, all everything that would ever happen from a GM's responsibility or back of house responsibility for a dealership happens here. Hmm. And all of our eight retail locations, we call them delivery centers hmm. uh, because they only have sales staff. Um, so in this corporate headquarters is marketing, um, HR, legal department, tag and title work, products cancellation and remittance, acquisition, wholesale, pricing, inventory management, reconditioning, body shop, phot- photography, um, you name it. Anything that happens to make a dealership run happens here. So um, because of that, and that that kind of, let's say that's a fixed or semi-fixed cost, as we continue to scale and add spokes and this hub stays the same, we become that much more profitable. Right. Um, so for us, even though we're looking at this year's forecast as being not positive for, you know, just to sugarcoat it a little bit. Right. We still are aggressively looking to expand. Um, even though everything else is tight about our business, we know that if we can add one more spoke, two more spokes, three more spokes, if it contributes anything to the middle, um, its net return is that much greater. Um, so you think about companies like Tesla, for instance, and their return on every the announcement they made was spectacular with their every thousand dollars they sell on a Tesla, then they get back like 260 bucks, I think it was something like that. So okay. it's the same thing with like for us, like we're kind of at that threshold now. And as we add stores, because at every store point adds very little to our actual overhead expenses. Interesting. Um, it contributes significantly more to the actual bottom line of the profitability of our dealership group. Um, and another little niche neat thing about it is because I don't have a shop, um, I don't do any customer service. I can buy kind of whatever I want when we expand. So good example of that is I, I my store in Frederick's, uh, Frederick, Maryland was a movie theater. My store in Alexandria was a garden center beforehand. Um, you know, wow. I, I'm looking at properties that were once Macy's. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me because I don't have to convince the county to put in an oil water separator because I'm, you know, storing oil and stuff like that. I'm just selling cars. You know, I'm really just putting up sales desks and office and parking things in a parking lot. Do you find that customers will ask you for recommendations on, you know, for service? And have you have you established partnerships with with providers along those lines? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, I, generally speaking, what we've always said is, if it's you know, if it's a BMW, go to a BMW dealership, and here's a great one that we that we've worked with in the past. Because um, most mm-hmm. of our stores have relationships with dealerships in their general area um, because of like warranty work. That's the only thing that we're going to send out. So. Um, you know, that's the, if anything, I think we can actually get stronger in there to have better relationships with referrals for service. Um, that being said, we always want to kind of do it for the benefit of the consumer. So, you know, I'd never want to kind of muddy the water there and make it kind of something that it isn't. So Joel, I'm curious, you know, as you look at growth and expansion, of course, you got to have the inventory, right? This is something that we've talked a lot about in terms of the used car market and just how crazy it is. And you, you see all different types of strategies, you know, whether it's kind of sight unseen appraisals or, you know, with you not having a service drive, it's kind of limiting in that sense that you yeah. can't acquire. So from your perspective, what what are you guys doing in terms of acquiring inventory and, and what's that look like now and then in the future? Yeah, I mean, I I think I still believe fundamentally in the um, health long term, maybe not in the short term of the auction model and, and, and the importance and role that it plays um, in, again, the full ecosystem of, of the market. Um, so that, that's where we require most of our cars, um, just to be totally clear. If, it, if we're talking 2019, 99% of my cars come from auction. Hmm. Um, the only reason that number has decreased um, besides just raw lack of availability is because we've taken off those guardrails, we've held on to more of our traits. Yeah, um, And so one of those factors I mentioned before about the difference between independent and new, our trades are of lower quality because, you know, someone who bought used, probably buying used again, right? Our, that collateral probably has even more miles on it that second time around. Um, it still has purpose and value and it'll be sold to someone else, but it doesn't fit our business model. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll wholesale those cars at, at a really, really high rate. That rate's declined dramatically um, and we're holding on to more of those trades. So for us, long term, I still believe in the auction model and we have phenomenal relationships with our auctions. So um, that comes with scale. And that's kind of hard. That's something that's really hard to talk about um, with with other independent operators. But because of the amount of vehicles that we buy, we have really unique relationships with our with our um, auction partners. But, yeah. you know, there's no doubt that 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 evolution of that space and the dealer to dealer space 
um, is there's opportunity for growth there. Um, there's opportunity for growth or buying off the street. I think that's that to me, that's the biggest trend that will evolve more. Um, right. That 25% or so of used car transactions that happen in the private market, how do, how do, you know, how do dealerships get more involved with that process at the, and, and then be beneficial for the customer, really? I mean, mm-hmm. we're experiment, experimenting with that right now pretty aggressively mm-hmm. uh, because currently we, we're really disengaged from auctions because of how much they are, they've climbed. Um, we were one of the few dealerships that I've spoken to that kind of, and all, all this credit goes to my father who's been buying cars. He's been our sole buyer. He's our CEO and founder, still incredibly active in the business, still buys most of our cars <laughs> uh, and is truly our CEO, CEO and founder. Um, and, you know, he was like, no, there's going to be a bump. I'm telling you, everyone else is wrong. And we all thought he was crazy, <laughs> um, but he was 100% right. And so we had, we had stocked up in you know, November and December prior to that massive increase we've seen this this quarter. Right. We're living off of that. All that to be said, we are experimenting heavily with buying cars off the street. So um, that wholesale team that was generally buying cars from auction are now plugged into Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace and trying to buy cars off the street. And it's we've had some moderate success there, um, but wow. it's a muscle that we're not very good at. That is interesting. Yeah, that, I mean, look, hey, you got, you know, whether- it's a whole new channel. I mean, whether right. anyone, if you're in the business of selling- pre-owned vehicles you got to figure out where to get them because we've already talked about there's the inventory out there but i um i wanted to shift gears a little bit joel you know uh talk i had two questions for you to different topics but you know again just contrasting the perspective of your view versus the view we typically do have on here which is a franchised new vehicle type of view um we've talked a lot about modern retail and online transactions and obviously carvana has sort of made famous the independent you know, used car dealer, but, but with no brick and mortar. Right. Um, and I'm curious, Joel, you know, clearly you, you believe in the brick and mortar, right. As evidenced by the way you guys run your, your, your group, but not having the boundaries. We hear a lot about a lot of OEMs, you know, sort of forcing their dealers down a path Mm -hmm. with their customer. And there is a clearly a battle that's going on right now between, you know, who owns that customer experience? Is right. it the dealer? Is it the franchise? In your case, you don't have, you're not bound by anything. So sure. what is the state of modern retail for you in terms yeah. of how you're approaching the on quote unquote online transaction and uh, yeah. in your, in your, in your perspective and in your group? Yeah. I mean, I would say I, I am bound by something I'm bound by the customer, you know, right. like, you know, they're, they're my algorithm. They're my guiding light. They're, you know, my, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I want to meet them where they're at. Um, mm-hmm. And so Carvana to me was and is a successful experiment in proving the use case that there's a market to be had in any market in the car space for a fully hands-off and deliver to your home experience. So, you know, it, I, I think it was actually, it was on your podcast, but people will look at what's currently going on with them and say, you know, throw, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but right. they have done a lot right. Um, I was yeah. like, my way of putting it, for Carvana is they did everything that dealerships did really poorly, really well. And everything that dealerships do really well, very poorly. That is easily the best. That so, is a quote that will be up. Thank you, Joel. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. sure. I remember that's actually, it's funny. Just to go back to it. That's what Alan Hagee's like, with their website, it's great. I'm like, if, if I could lose a, you know, $150 million a quarter, I could build you a hell of a website. Um, but no, the, all, all jokes aside, like they they really have an incredible UX and it's one that I, I lust after and want to build towards. Um, and so for me, like we want to say, you know, what does that mean? Like if Carvana has got had at its peak one, one-ish percent of the market share, okay, maybe on you know, the adoption curve, that's about where they're at. Where's the rest of the consumer base in that space? And really, what, what purpose for are, are we going for with our modern retail strategy? And I, I do like that kind of rebranding from digital retailing because digital retailing became such almost like a, an, a useless term because it could mean you had a payment calculator website and it could mean yes. you delivered to the doorstep. And you know, most dealerships right. are somewhere in that, in that spectrum. So our current space, we use Roadster as our platform. Mm-hmm. We're actually one of the original investors in that product, in that before they, they were acquired by CDK. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, Roadster as a platform really has enabled us to meet the customer where they're at and allow for a, a non-linear experience for a consumer to start at any point in the car buying process and decide if they want to basically buy the entire car from their com- from their couch and have it delivered or just save a little bit more time in the dealership. And that's our value, pr- value 
um, proposition to the consumer. Um, we, we, I think we package it nicely, in my opinion, I'm biased, but um, if, with our new slogan, any car, anyway, for everyone. And that's meant to kind of say it in a few different ways. One, we sell assets from, I guess, the, not really 10,000 because those cars don't exist, as I said before. <laughs> right. It's like 20,000 in today's market to 150,000 and the spectrum from, you know, first time buyers with no credit to prime prime. Um, and then really for the last part is customers who say, I want to do the whole car in purchasing in store, just like I have for years, or a customer who says, I want to, you know, buy, do everything online. I don't even want to see the car until it shows up on my doorstep. And the reality is most customers are somewhere in the middle and that's mm, what we need to find. Right. And to me, it's all about the numbers. Like what matters to me most is customers engage with these products when you offer them to them. Um, they ask less questions when you off when you offer them education. And if you can answer their questions before they have them, they become that much more engaged and then they convert that much higher. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like a philosophical exercise for me. When I turn a customer from a lead to what Roadster calls an order, they show it a night at 89% rate. So mm. I want to take as many of these and turn them into that because they show higher. Right. Um, and, and, and if it allows me to sell more cars, even better. And that really, to me, is what we are building towards with our strategy. For, for us, it becomes a time problem. And I think this will be the case for most dealerships too, um, is if you have, if you're transacting in a store and you want to take, you know, salesperson X and get them from 20 cars to 30 cars a month without having them work more hours, the only way to do that is shorten transaction time. And the only way to shorten transaction time, in my opinion, is by doing more of it online. Because if you're, if it's a subprime customer and it takes four hours to hang that paper, it takes four hours to hang that paper where they're in your showroom or they're sitting on their couch. But if it's an asynchronous experience for the consumer, it's a net positive because they feel like it's happening instantly. Reality was I have a, I have a buying center at a, in our corporate facility that has finance managers with 20 years experience that are hanging paper digitally. And so for them, it's just a regular old car sale. But for a customer, you know, they filled an application, sat down and watched an episode of you know, Stranger Things and came back and they were approved. <laughs> real so for them, it feels instant, you know? Right. Um, and we, we, we see that reflected in, in a couple different key metrics. One, my average car sold per salesperson increases. Um, my transaction gross profit per unit has stayed the same, if not grown. Um, and my MPS scores have climbed. So all of those things are positive trends, meaning that the customers that transact in that space um, grow. And two, two things I'm going to add to this. Um, one big thing that you'll hear from a lot of dealerships that are hesitant about this is they believe that customers will be scared off by high interest rates or they won't select products because of their costs. Um, and I'll push back that push back on that incredibly hard because it just doesn't bear out in the numbers. Um, and it just isn't true. Yeah. I'll, share, I'll gladly share a view status to my data studio with anybody who asks. Uh, and I might be unleashing a, a whole thing by saying that on this, but uh, you, know, you can check out the numbers and you can see it in real time. It, it, it happens. Customers self-select products on my VDPs 3.4 times. Um, and so our, our, our product penetration actually increased when we showed them the numbers. But do you attribute um, that to the education you yes. mentioned that you're sharing? Yeah. When I say education, just so I'm clear, when I say education, I don't mean like, hey, we have these products. I mean, here's this product. Here's what it costs. Here's what it costs per month based on your self-selected financial situation. And it's added to your deal automatically. Right. You have to deselect it. So customers are exposed to these. You know, um, one of the things that we didn't talk about with our structure is I don't have an F&I manager and I don't have an F&I box. Hmm. The customer transaction happens with one salesperson at their desk. And then the entire tower of our management staff shares the gross of the entire deal. And so there is no fighting over the front and back of a deal. It all happens hmm. with, with the consumer all the way through the process. Love that. And That's then the other cool. uh, last thing I want to mention is I think that modern retail taking, not using the car specific term, but just what you would consider a modern retail company in our space today is a mix of digital and retail. I would just say the operationally, had, the, the entry point is flipped where it used to be, I had a, a brick and mortar and I then I started a website. Now you see like modern companies like Casper or Peloton or, you know, any of those kind of newer, larger groups or Allbirds or, you know, whatever, just pick yeah. one, right? They were all online first. They built the fan base. And then they said, okay, how do I get over this adoption curve? I'm going to start adding stores. Right. So people can kind of that Apple concept. Though. I want people to touch and feel the product to get exposed to it in real time. And I think that in the car business, that's still going to be an important factor. And it shows itself in all the numbers. Like 
most customers still say they want to go to a dealership and they want to test drive. And then most customers say they hate the, hate the dealership experience, but it doesn't right. change the they still said the first thing. You know? And so you just right. have to work on improving that process, not trying to eliminate it entirely. Yeah, no, that's, that's very practical. And I, Wholeheartedly agree. hundred percent. Yeah. No, you said you had another question for Joel. I had a quick one. Um, and then I think we have to get to, uh, everyone's favorite segment. Everyone's favorite. Right. Um, but, um, um, I was curious, you know, we talk a lot of new car dealers about EVs. Mm-hmm. How are you preparing for EVs if at all yeah. in the independent use space? Yep. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're preparing for it in the same way that I think as much as we can, um, I'd say right now is a really rocky time in the secondary market for EVs um, yeah. because of the volatility of new pricing, especially from what the moves that Tesla's been making. Right. They sent this like, you know, shiver down the spine of every used car manager when it comes to pricing out an EV. And, you know, the, our first exposure of that was when they made those first price cuts. I owned practically new EV, practically new Teslas that all of a sudden cost more than a new one. Um, and that happened overnight. I mean, that was a slightly unprecedented move. Um, but for us, one, it's training, training our technical staff. Um, and then all of our stores have at least two stage chargers, two two-stage chargers, um, and our larger ones have four. Um, and the reason we added those was when one of our uh, one, another one of the things that makes us unique is my inventory is free-flowing between our locations. Um, oh. and you start to add vehicles with limited range that you can't just top off when they get to the store. Right. Um, it became an issue. So like a customer would say, hey, I want to see this I3. And, you know, they're at one store and I have to drive it from this store to the other store. No problem. Then the car gets there and they say, I want it. It's like, great. You don't have enough juice to get home. So that's <laughs> even overnight. Um, you know, assuming I didn't have a range extender. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's the best thing that we can do. I, I think that the, you know, I, the name of the company escapes me, but um, the automotive venture investment um, from Stephen Greenfield of the kind of Carfax for EVs. Yes. Yeah. I think that's going to play a really important role. I think it's going to require a ton of education in the open market from a consumer's perspective, understand even what they're reading about. Um, but you know, the, the, that's a really important thing because that's what scares me the most right now is right now there's no responsibility for disclosure of vehicle of the, you know, quality and life of that battery. Health, yeah. Um, and I don't know who's going to have, if they say it's a dealership's responsibility and then we have to all get test units, that's going to be a huge hit. That'll make, I think a lot of players not want to do it. Um, if it becomes the auction's responsibility, then buying, you know, be, you know, EVs from auction then become more valuable. And then on the secondhand market, I mean, that's a whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the other little bit that that qualifies a little bit is this new um, trend to making these cards less insurable because of the potential damage for the battery cell. Right, right. Um, I think letting that pan out is a little bit weird. And all this really only applies to secondhand market. Um, you're buying new, you're buying new, you have manufacturing warranty, all that stuff is kind of the same. Um, but yeah, that's that's the stuff that worries me. But, you know, we've transacted in the space, we buy them. You know, I was like, we're playing hot potato with an asset at the end of the day. I mean, I'm right, right. buying it low and selling it high. And yeah, it's way more complicated than that, but sometimes it isn't. Um, so, you know, we're, we're just doing our best in that space. Does your team, are you getting a sense that more customers are coming in asking about EVs or not? Sure. Yeah, no, the, the lead volume we get on EVs is, is generally higher than a traditional ICE vehicle that would be kind of comparable in that space. I think there's just more curiosity overall and still, I mean, and even today, it's not like you can just go drive EVs. They're not, they're not everywhere. Um, we, we happen to be a metropolitan area, but if I wasn't, it, it would be even more extreme in that scenario. Um, but it's it to us, it's just an important part of the market. It's not it, like like your guest said last week to me, and you know many weeks ago for you guys, um, that market share is only going to continue to increase. Um, and then once it finally does bridge into the affordability market, and for us, we're kind of that we're that temporary bridge in the used space. Um, and when when the used tax credit for EVs actually does kind of happen, that'll also change that. Um, but yeah, in the short term, we're going to be the only affordable EVs for used EVs, and then right, the responsibility right. that 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 will then mean, and how we have to deal with that, will will kind of continue to evolve as consumers and get more educated. And, and an anecdotal story for that I'll give is, yeah, we had a customer return an i three because you know the the range extender turned on, and they said, "What? I I bought an electric car, I didn't I didn't buy a gas car." Interesting. And, and we we talked to her, explained it to her, and you know went through the whole process, and all this had been told to her beforehand. I, but she had never heard the engine kick on because you really can't make the engine kick on in that car. It has it has to just run out of electricity. 
Right. And it just, she just didn't want it. She's like, I just, I bought this car. So I never wanted to put, never wanted to use gas again. Mm, um, wow. and ended up, we ended up having to take her out of the car and find her another EV, which isn't a problem. We have a seven day return policy, but it's just one of those things where the, the, where the general automotive trend is with education on what the difference is between a hybrid and electric and extended range electric, you're going to start adding hydrogen cells into this. It, it's not as simple as, as the everyday consumer um, you know, as, as we think it is, cause we live in this space. It's so true. I think there's so much education that still needs to take place when it comes to so much. Yeah. 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 It's, vehicle. it's, it's really, yeah. um, I think we could talk about this all day. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really fascinating to think about used EVs yeah. and, and how that space is going to shake out. Definitely. Um, and it's shaking out right before our eyes. So it's really, it's really, really you're going to keep getting more used. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, that's, I'm, we're talking about in our space, it's very far and few between because you know, two years ago, the market share on EVs was what, 2%? Right. And now, I think, according to your guess, is 8%. So, yeah. yeah. And so, the, again, it's you think about that, the ecosystem, it's, that takes years. Those cars become used cars. They trickle through the systems. They get traded in or they get returned to the manufacturer if they're released. All that stuff kind of has to happen. It just takes time. It's like we're, we're making wine over here. You just have to wait for the barrels to age. Right. That's right. Well, Joel, I think we've reached the moment that everyone has been waiting oh, for. Oh, man. Um, Elliot, are you ready? I don't know that I, I'm ready. I've seen one. you making furious notes. Uh-huh, during I'm our, sorry for I all of our Elliot, for my, <laughs> looking at my Elliot top, been top of my bald head here. <laughs> and, uh, for anyone watching on YouTube, we do not give a good view. No. no. Let's just say that. But Joel, for those that don't know, we're we're about to embark on a segment we like to call a sure thing. And Elliot here, he has some hot takes. He's got opinions all over yeah. the board. Um, and we ask our guests to to tell us, is that an opinion that is a sure thing or not a sure thing? Right. And um, yeah, our first one here, unfortunately, is ruined because we've already talked about it. But that's OK. Uh, and it was a softball to begin with. So now it's like an extra big beach ball for you, Joel. But um, <laughs> hit it up or hit it down. I don't know. Hit a point or not. Yeah, that's the, I got. The uh, so you know we talked about you know who is in the best position to win the used car market, mm-hmm. right? Um, and um, you know a lot of people, Vroom, Carvana. I saw a Vroom commercial uh, watching the the NBA playoffs, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, but um, um, you know, it's is it online only? Is it the franchise cars uh, people? But I believe that actually it is the independent used car dealer that has a physical presence that is in the best position to under to actually win the used car market. Sure thing or not a sure thing. What a softball. <laughs> I, I said it. I Honestly, you know, I don't think it's as softball as you think it is. Uh, so are we defining CarMax as an independent? I mean, they are. Technically. So actually, I was alluding to CarMax. Yes. Yeah. If, I mean, yes. Oh, yeah. CarMax is the class of the field, without a doubt. I mean, they have positive reactions to their negative quarterly earnings. That's how good they are. I, mean, you know, <laughs> I always like, I, you know, we always say here, if there's something that they're doing that we're not, what's up? And if there's something that we're doing that they're not, what's up? Like, you know, just because they have, um, you know, they have just built such an incredible model. Um, and also, you know, another thing, too, is that as a large group like the, like them, their access to in-house lending is a unique thing in the independent space and gives them a little bit more of a layer of protection when it comes to like this year's financial instability, for instance. So right, it's right. a sure thing for sure. And I, I, if anything, it's almost shocking how, how uh, much they've allowed that space to grow outside of them and, and how I, I think almost slowly they're catching up um, to that, yeah. that UX online. Um, yeah, it's sort of undervalued yeah. that yeah. that that kind of model, and you know, it's in this all or nothing world we live in. It's got to be all online, or right. it's you know, it, so it's kind of undervalued. Well, yeah, I mean, also you could you can make the opposite argument is if someone like them isn't doing it, then maybe it just isn't financially possible at the way that that Carvana has been doing it, for instance, because of the transactional costs of it. Um, so I think finding that happy medium is is an important factor. 
Yep. I almost don't want to give you credit for that one just because it was so easy. You really all right, okay. but we'll give I mean, it to I, you. I, I guess I spiked the beach ball. Is that a good yeah, thing? Yeah, you did. Yeah, it's one for one. Yeah. No, we made you made it something when I clearly had nothing. Okay. So thank you. You're one for but one. I, I did I did love your comment and, and I'll reference it. You said you said the customer is my algorithm. Yeah. And I love that. That's a great I, statement. I, I, stole really that from, I stole that from an SEO talk I went to years ago. And <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's great. Who cares? We'll make it yeah, yours. No one knows yeah, that. The whole car business is full of thievery That's right. of ideas, right? There's no new ideas in the car business. Yeah. But the um, so all right, that was number one. That was supposed to be my business one. But um, <laughs> well, since we're talking all things independent, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, Mark and I like to catch a movie here and there. Um, we're usually tell- terrible about recalling the facts of the terrible movies. about recalling them. But I did a little preparation. Yes. Um, and uh, because we're celebrating all things independent on this podcast. And, you know, independent movies are something that's really interesting. Major, like we were talking about, it's one of the things that where the sort of, you know, the actors go for their freedom, right? right. The directors go so that they don't have a big You're saying studio. that are not the big studio. Yeah, right. The independents. And those are the ones that are, 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 most of the time actually end up winning yes, awards and stuff. And so, you know, I was thinking about... What is the best independent films of all time? Okay. You know? Okay. And, and I'll just, it's really hard to know what's an independent film, right. what's not. Right. Thank you. It's a pretty easy answer, but yeah, go ahead. Some of the movies I considered in this, you okay. know, Napoleon Dynamite, yes, great, movie. great movie, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, fantastic movie, Parasite, won the Oscar Amazing a couple of years movie. ago. Um, you know, hey, you know, even um, Goodwill Hunting is a, is at the classic, time, another another Oscar winner, uh, Lost in Translation, one of my favorites, really wa- made me want to go visit Japan. Bill Murray, uh, Bill Murray in his prime. Um, Dazed and confused. Hey, hey, hey. Really gone back. Yes, independent film. Yes. I believe the best independent film of all time has, has to be Pulp Fiction. Oh, right? Yeah, that was my answer. There you go. Agreed. Sure thing. Oh, that was, that was literally what you said. It had, I said, I said it's easy. It's Pulp Fiction. Well done. I never thought we would be on the same page there, but yeah. Maybe it's our demographic. That movie changed independent movies forever. Like yes. prove to smaller uh, like financiers that they could actually make money, and then it changed. Like the whole infrastructure of the film industry changed after Pulp Fiction. It really did, and yeah. uh, and um, yeah, and 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 then it's. Uh, well, I'm flabbergasted by that. I really two I mean, for two. I this is crazy. Well, can we finish three for three? There's no way we're going to finish three for three, but. Uh, Joel, I had to dig deep in your LinkedIn profile for this one, okay. and um, and I, I understand. And like many of us, young when we're young, uh, we get we get odd jobs of sorts. And you actually had this on your LinkedIn resume, so I figured I'd use it. Um, but uh, do I understand right? You worked a little bit at the at the Palm, oh, the yeah. Palm yeah. Steakhouse. Yep. Yeah. I think, I think I think it should be a legal requirement for people to work at a restaurant, by the way. I hundred percent. I did too. I was a server as well. I also judge the character of someone on oh, how they treat their server. Agreed. Oh, yeah. True? Hundred degrees. Yes. I worked in an Italian That's restaurant. A sure thing. That's a sure thing. Definitely. Well, we'll get to the short thing. So, you know, it got us thinking. Mark and I were talking a little. Um, you know, knowing that you worked at the palm and the um um there, there's one thing for sure about the car business and car people. They I love a good steak. They love a good steak. <laughs> there is no shortage of steakhouses that cater to car people. And so um, we started talking about the best, uh, and this is a good debate that people have all the time, best steakhouses of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, could be a chain. We're not just going independent yeah. versus chains. We can go with anything here. Okay. Um, and I have my sure thing. And I will stand by this to the death. Okay. But um but very passionate about your steakhouse. Yeah, I am very passionate. Um, to me, the best steakhouse of all time. And uh, yes, I did think about Halls, Mountains, Charleston, great place. Okay. No doubt about it. Um, but to me, the best steakhouse of all time has to be Peter Luger's. In New York. Peter Luger. Yes. Okay. Peter Luger Steakhouse so, I, in New York. I feel like sure you're going to have an opinion on this. Not a sure. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've never been. Um, so it's, it's, I feel like you're going with like these obscure. Is that a, is that a single point in New York? 
No, it's, it's a little bit of a chain. It's okay. a little bit of a chain. It's an oddball of a chain. Yeah. We did talk about this because it's not as big as like a Capitol Grill. Oh, right. no. Well, it only has two stores, but right. it is the only one that actually has sauce, steak mm. sauce distributed through major supermarkets nationwide. Okay. All right. So you can't find another steakhouse that has their sauce distributed like that besides for Peter Luger. But all right. Before El- Elliot starts salivating Mark? over here, Joel, sure thing or not a sure thing? I'm going to say not a sure thing. Oh, mostly because I didn't want to give you three. But <laughs> secondarily, because I think you need to find a place that has a ton of options and not just good steak sauce. So and also I feel like if you go to a, like so steak sauces are great for home. But if you're out, you want like a hollandaise or something because you, you never make that at home. Right. You need something ultra rich or something covered in mushrooms. It, you know, you grill a steak on the weekend. You're not making a, you know, a Delmonico at home. So you need somewhere that specializes so, in that. So, so what's your pick? That's Do you my have- pick. My pick, ha- even though it's a safe choice, it has to be Capital One. And there's a, I'm sorry, Capital One. <laughs> <laughs> you got finance. There's, 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 there's actually a reason for it. One is I worked at the Palm too long to pick that place. Um, and so, and also my dad has his, his picture at the Palm. He's right below. Does he really? Yeah, cool. got, our, our corporate office used to be across the street from there. So he ate there so much that he got up his palm points to get his face below the bushes. <laughs> you always say that I'm below the bushes. That's and what the literally... points are for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, Capital, so I think Capital Grill is amazing. One is you eat at them at every conference you go to because they're consistent. They're easy. They have private rooms. Their calamari is arguably. Oh, I love it. Agree. Right? Um, and also I'm, I've recently become a vegetarian and they do a mean grilled tofu. So yeah, but it, no, it's, it, they do a great job and uh, it's, everything's always so good there. Mark, real quick, yours. I have to agree. Capital Grill Capital for me Grill. is the favorite. Interesting. But look at Grill here. The location in DC is, is right next to the stadium um, for where the Wizards and the Capitals play. Um, and it's like iconic little spot with the, like, I know all of them have lions, but it's actually like built into an old brick, like uh, brownstone. So it just looks amazing. Oh, wow. Well, Joel, my home one. Really cool. Joe, we have learned a ton, right? I mean, look, he's an independent used car dealer and a vegetarian. What other norms can he defy? Seriously. uh, In one conversation. Joel, we can't thank you enough, first of all, for reaching out to us. Thank you, Joel. For listening to the podcast and now for coming on and sharing your insights that anyone in the car business can take away. Anyone. uh, For some lessons learned and things that they should be thinking about in their business. Yeah. Definitely. Um, what a what a great uh, treat this was, Joel. Thank you for coming on. I think you've provided our listeners a lot to think about in terms of the independent space. Absolutely. Uh, appreciate it. Honored, honored to even be here. I'm a fan and I'll keep being a fan. So thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, any anytime that I can help any other dealers, that's always a benefit for, uh, for me and for the industry overall. Thanks so much, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening, whether you are a dealer owner, GM, sales or service, or just starting your automotive career, you are sure to pick up some insights. Oh, that's very slick. I like what you did there. Appreciate it. Well, in all seriousness, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, We would uh, really love if you could go on and leave us a review. Uh, Go ahead and like, hit subscribe. We're on YouTube for the video, Spotify, Apple, anywhere you can find a podcast, you can find us. We greatly appreciate you listening. Thank you, guys.